I think I got, there we go. Yeah, took off my watch now. <laughs> he said he'll remind me right up here. Yeah. That's all right. We're Pentecostal in here, which means we can hang out all day, right? That's technically what that means, right? It means we like to stand up, sit down, stand up again, maybe one more time, sit down, and then maybe stand up one last time. No. <laughs> this guy's got jokes up front. This guy's got jokes. I'm being heckled already. I'm being heckled. <laughs> Well, we are here. We've arrived uh, uh, this morning, like I said, in Mark uh, 14. Uh, we've arrived basically at the, kind of the elephant in the room while we've been talking about the gospel. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest right here. I'm not going to speed us up through this R-rated spot, all right? Because that's what we're about to get into, like the graphic violence part. And uh, maybe some slight nudity. Not going to lie. There's some going on here. We're going to talk about it a little bit today. Uh, we've known it's been coming for quite some time. It's the part of the gospel we often tend to like rush through. Uh, we'll call it the cross. We'll call it, hey, it's the atoning sacrifice. And we have all these like theological terms and just about anything we can really to shorten this moment or somehow bring it to some kind of simplicity. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, the, the one thing that we kind of tend, or why I guess we tend to like shorten it is because we often think uh, in the way of, um, we don't, it's this ugly truth about ourselves, really. I mean, the, the gospel at this end, at this, where we're at now is going to be this ugly truth that reveals a very uh, dark side of humanity. And so we, we tend to try to focus on the best side of it we can, because that's what we like to do. I mean, it just is. We, we like to forget the bad. We like to just focus on the good. I mean, how many of you are like me? You're not even watching the news anymore. You're like, I don't care. You know what? Even the weather guy's a liar. He said it was going to rain yesterday, like all day. Didn't see anything till the end of the night, man. I mean, like, so like, it's like everything's fake news, including the weather. You know, I mean, like, so we're just like, we've gotten to that place now. We're just like upset with everything. We just don't, there's that part of us that just wants to turn it off, right? It's so negative. It's so bad. We just want to turn it off or just get through it or just focus on something good. With the problem here, where we have arrived at the gospel, there's no way of going around this. This is for the reason that the gospel was written. So I'm not going to speed us up here. And this sermon isn't some hammer meant to be like pounded upon our hearts to create some sort of guilt. It's just simply our history. It's this like ugly stain, this ugly fact. It's a reminder to the scope and the depth of the depravity that the human heart possesses. It's interesting to me how easily we can go from friend and then also be the enemy. How quick we can shout, please heal me, Jesus. And in the same breath, and even maybe even the same person, say, kill him. I mean, human beings are fickle. You ever just looked around? They're fickle. The proof is in our broken promises, our broken friendships, our broken marriages. It just keeps going, right? You get the point. There's, um, there was just no possible way we were ever going to just be able to uphold a set of rules. How many of you have ever just followed the whole rules your whole life? Not a single one, right? Not a single person, right? And that, those rules were meant to cleanse us or, or to kind of show us what it was like to be right before the Lord, to be holy before the Lord. And when we couldn't do it, God just made a way. And this is the way. It's not just the cross. It's all of it, right? The moments before it, the walk to it, all of it, right? Ever notice that when you're in pain that life seems to slow down? Well, that's what it's going to feel like over the next few months, <laughs> because we're going to talk about the ugly side of things, right? The cross is an ugly picture. It's not pretty. 
right? When the passion came out, you know it was rated R, right? It was rated R. The people were like, don't take your kids to that thing. It's going to be bad. I mean, if they really show what happened to Jesus, there's no way they're getting around how rated R this thing is going to be. And when we're in pain, when things are suffering, when we're hurting, when bad times are happening in our life, it's like time just slows down and we're stuck in that moment. And it always, seems longer, uh, it always seems to linger longer than it should. But here's where we begin. And this is a long road, but I'm not going to shorten it, but we're going to get there. We're going to finish chapter 14 today. We are going to arrive at the end eventually. All right? Mark 14, verses 43. I'll stop around 50 or so, and we'll deal with it little piece by little piece. <clears throat> Mark 14, 43 through 50. Say amen when you're there. Amen. I like it. I like it. And immediately... Even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs that had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. So Judas kisses Jesus. Now Jesus is betrayed. We've been talking about this moment for a while. And here's the the ironic thing. This moment is not as quiet as we might assume it to be. It's not like this nice, gentle thing. Quite the contrary. It's uh, in the middle of this moment that the guards, uh, in the attempt to arrest Jesus, a disciple which name uh, isn't mentioned here, slashes off the ear of the temple guardsman. Now, the New Living Translation, I like it. It refers to him as a slave of the high priest. That might be pretty spiritually accurate there. However, this is kind of an interesting development because Jesus and his ministry really had never resorted into violence in any other run-in that they'd ever been in. I mean, there are a lot of times they tried to take Jesus and kill him. But never a time where his disciples thought, pretty good idea today, let's cut off someone's ear. This didn't happen. All right. In Mark's account, which is believed to be Peter's account as dictated to Mark, there's no mention of who this disciple is. And yet each gospel account records this event to happen. However, it is through John's account that we find out who this disciple was. It was Peter. John's account says this in John 18, 10 through 11 says, Then Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? Interesting to have somebody like John in your life. I was thinking about this. There's a conversation that eventually happens with Peter. Maybe we'll get to it. Where Peter is asked when he's built up, we talked a little bit, when Peter denies Jesus three times at the end there, Jesus builds him up. You remember when we talked about the rooster crowing on the morning, he says, hey, take care of my sheep. Well, right after that conversation, we kind of put the brakes on that, but right after that conversation, there's this neat uh, 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 back and forth between Jesus where Peter goes, well, what about John? What's going to happen to John? Because it says he told him about how Peter would die. He says, well, how's John going to die? 
By the way, don't you think there's something going on between them two? John being the only one that records Peter doing it. Like, hey, bro, I don't bring up every time you do something wrong. You made sure that that got written down, didn't you? Nobody else wrote it down but you, John. No wonder he's going, when's that guy dying? Right? This is the guy that never lets me forget my mistakes. Right? He writes it down so that everybody knows how bad I am. I mean, this is an interesting dialogue between the two, right? It's also an interesting omission if Peter really dictated this thing to Mark, isn't it? Peter made sure that his name was omitted out of that. Like, well, you know, it happened. We're not going to say who. John's like, it was you. Hey, man, I thought we agreed we weren't going to say who. No, no, it was you, Peter. I don't think we get to judge Peter. Here's the thing. Have you ever made a mistake you wish you could omit? Just wish you could erase it? Wish you could go back, man, and go, man, that wasn't me. That was somebody else. And it just gets believed to be that way, right? And maybe you have. Maybe you just don't talk about it. Maybe you try to move on from it. And here's the kind of lucky thing sometimes. Time and human memory has afforded you the luxury of having that bad moment in your life to be forgotten or hidden away. I can tell you that when I talked to a psychologist earlier in the year, he began to ask me stuff about the war for, for at least my side of it and my part to take in Somalia and things like that. I was like, yeah, but that was a long time ago and those things are good now. And he goes, well, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you have repressed memories is what you do. You're, you're, it's been 20 years and you're trying to remember it differently. Well, shut up, man. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, I mean, like he read my mail, right? That's the truth. The truth that happens, I'd repressed it, right? If I don't talk about it long enough, it's like it didn't happen. But it did happen. I don't talk about it because I'm ashamed of it. And if I keep not talking about it, you know, I told, I told somebody one time, I remember about 10 or 15 years after Small, I said, man, it's like a dream. It's like it never happened. And there's very few people around that remember it anymore. And so, like, there's, there's this coming to grips sometimes with things that have gone but are they really ever gone or is it just repressed right can i give you some biblical advice here peter's account of cutting off a man's ear wasn't allowed to be omitted god made sure that all the disciples recorded it john was the only one brave enough to say who did it if peter isn't allowed to omit his mistakes do you think that god is going to allow you to simply omit yours and i don't say this as a hammer let me tell you your mistakes are never omitted or erased, but they can be forgiven. Hear me. They can be forgiven. And can I tell you, biblical forgiveness leads to eternal forgottenness. Jesus says, once I forgive it, I forget it as far as the east is to the west. The irony, I, I, I've said this in here before, is I've had people their whole life tell me, you know, when I was early Christian, didn't know any better. It's like, when you get to heaven, God's going to play this movie of your life. And God's going to see all the good things and bad things you did. Is he? Because I claim the blood of Jesus over my life that cleanses me, that makes me white as snow. The one that in John 12, where John's, when the angel asked John, and says, who are these singing? Those are those who've been made white by the blood of the lamb. I don't know if you've noticed, but you can't see anything on the white. I mean, if there was a speck, it'd be there, right? But you know, they're clothed in white. They're clean. Why? Because the blood of the lamb. Because of what Jesus done, my mistakes have been forgotten. They won't be seen on it. There's, there, there's nothing they're going to see. You know what they're going to see? It's going to be a red screen if there's going to be anything. And he's like, I don't see anything but Jesus' blood. Yeah, come on in. You know why he calls you good and faithful servant? Because that's all he sees is the good and faithful servant. That's all he sees. The irony of we think we're that, right? We're, we always think that when I see people say that. I just want the Lord to tell me good and faithful servant. You think that's something you're going to attain by your works? No. He'll see the blood of Jesus. 
the atoning blood of Jesus, the work of Christ over you and go, good and faithful servant. Because the blood of Jesus is the stamp of the good and faithful servant. But Jesus, you know, he's, he's, he's always in control. Great leader regains control of the situation by rebuking Peter. He heals the man's ear, right? He reaffirms the idea that this is happening all because it's the will of the Father. It's the will of God. Even the scriptures support this very moment. There's no stopping it, okay? It's for this reason he has come. However, he also points out that this is done in the darkness of night. Rather than in the daylight when he was in the temple, when they could have easily done all of this in front of everyone, they came to him in the darkness of night. In other words, it's all shady. It's all shady. And by pointing out that moment, he makes sure to remind them of just what sort of underhanded moment is happening. I'm in this group that had come to get Jesus became a bit unruly, too, also after the ear thing. It's understandable. Come on. You chop an ear off, things get a little crazy. All right? I mean, I don't know about you. I've never seen somebody's ear get chopped off. I got to imagine there's a lot of blood pouring out of that thing. All right? And I got to imagine, like, oh, my gosh, this thing, I thought we were just coming to get this guy who was supposed to be this meek and mild guy, right? As soon as we grab a hold of this guy, somebody pulled out a sword, chops off a guy's ear. Blood's going everywhere. Jesus is picking up ears and putting them back on, which is still bizarre. All right? I mean, like, think about the chaos of this moment. It's crazy. And it at least gets crazy enough that all the disciples run away. And I have to think they run basically to some point because what else can they do? They can't fight this moment. Jesus won't let them. He yells at them. Come on. This mob that's come to get Jesus, they don't care about honor. It's not about justice. They came at night. It's not even the truth. They start grabbing anyone who says that they're associated with Jesus. And so they all run. All of them. And it's so crazy that in that moment that one of the disciples is grabbed by the shirt and the only way to get away is to slip out of it and he runs away completely nude. By the way, I did not see that in the Passion. Just saying. I mean, he already had the rated R thing and he didn't go that way. Just saying. How many, how many of you remember that part of it? None of you, right? Like, isn't that weird? We're so fixated because we know like the brutality that's about to take place. That we, that we miss all the little things, like how crazy this moment was, how chaotic it was. Blood coming out of somebody's head, Jesus picking up ears, some guy just ran away nude. I mean, there's a lot of things happening here. Mark 14, 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, the teachers of the religious law had all gathered. Funny who stays up in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance. He went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they, put him, so they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer any of these charges? What do, you, what do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent. He made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need 
other witnesses. You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cry. He deserves to die. Then some of them begin to spit at him, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him with their fist. Good job, pastors. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. This isn't the Romans. This is the Jews. This is the church. They took Jesus. They did not say, hey, come with me. They took him. The word, the adjective is took. He didn't resist, but this adjective describes the nature by which they did it. It was physical. They didn't ask him. They didn't plead with him. They took him by force. Knowing their intentions, he willingly went. He headed straight for this kangaroo court. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Kangaroo court is basically a slang for a court that ignores like regular standards of laws or justice. They just ignore everything. It's just a, it's a sham. The whole thing is a sham. And Jesus, listen, he's not going to see law. He's not going to see any kind of justice, right? This court is entirely political. It's a pull for power. It's a pull for keeping things traditional because if it's traditional, those who've been under the tradition for the longest have the most power in it. So the plotting begins, the planning begins, the stories start coming up, but nothing's true. Therefore, nothing's kind of in sync, right? They're all different. They've got no credibility, and it's story after story. But Jesus, he keeps his mouth shut. He sits there. He's like trusting in the Lord. This is what he's prayed about for his whole life. By the way, if Jesus can sit through false accusations, friends, can you? Man, our desire... And our hearts cry. There's a fine line between justice and vengeance. And I am scared at times that we don't know the difference. I think about this as Jesus is falsely accused. If we are falsely accused, I'm not sure what we want sometimes is justice or vengeance. I think sometimes we just want vengeance. And we cloak it in justice. Well, it's not right what they did, so I want to make sure they know it. That's not justice. That's vengeance. Sometimes it's better just to sit still and sit quiet and remember that the Lord upholds you. Jesus keeps his mouth shut. He's trusting in the Lord. This is a lesson all in itself. He's prayed about this moment for his whole life, so he's trusting the Father with it. It's what he was born for. And that's not conjuncture, guys. I'm not guessing when I say things like this is what he was born for. Scripture backs this up. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. This is 700 years before he's alive. This is not coincidence that's led us here. This is providence. God determining something. God choosing to birth his son into the world for this purpose. This plan shows some huge forethought. Come on, man, 700 years. God's been planning this since chapter 3 of Genesis. That's when the first prophetic word goes out that Jesus will be born. It's, it's amazing. It's all happening, right? Accusation after accusation, Jesus never opens his mouth. That is until the accusations cease. And finally, a single question beckons him for the truth. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replies, and look at your Bibles. It's not I and then little a and little m. It's I, big A, and big M. And they knew this, right? 
This is the same I am that came from, from God to Moses. Who shall I say? Who shall I say is say this? I am that I am. And they recognize this. Like, and just like that, the silence is broken. And to what? To plead? No. To grovel? To beg? No. To announce, to declare that Jesus is God. More even so is that, that he also says that one day they will see it. And how frightening it would be, I can't help but think, for them to know how wrong they were and to what they had done when they stand before him at the end of their days in judgment. But interesting enough, their response isn't to be frightened. They're too lost in being right to see that they are wrong. Let me say that again. They're too lost in being right that they can't see that they're wrong. By the way, have you ever been that? When you're too busy trying to be right that you can't see you're wrong? Or how about this? Did you know that sometimes you can be right and still be wrong? It's true. Let me show you a little bit, and this is just outside my notes, but let me show you a little bit. The Bible also says that there are those that will come and say, in Jesus' name, they did all these things. And they will go to the Father, and they will go before the, the throne and say, listen, we did all these things in your name. By the way, they will have miracle ministries. They'll have healings and all kinds of stuff they will be able to say. But you, but you know the difference is? They, they, well, it seemed like they were right. It seemed like they did right things. They did stuff that was right. How can they be so wrong? You know, the Bible also talks about, and Paul says, whether you have faith that can move mountains, but if you haven't love. It's worthless. Can I tell you, there are going to be people that move mountains that don't know what love is. That can't love a lost person. That can't love somebody who struggles because they're too busy loving themselves. They're too busy loving the ministries that they have. They're too busy in love with the faith that moves mountains. They're in love with the power. By the way, that's why he brings it up. I move, we're, they, they, they do all these things. We do all these things in your name. Are you sure? It sounds like that's what you're boasting about. To me, if you, first of all, if you reach heaven boasting about anything you've done, you're already wrong. You can be right and be completely wrong. Right? You can be right in an argument, but how you discuss something, if it's not in love, you're wrong. If, I just want them to see that they're wrong. That's not a right feeling. People don't like people like that, by the way. They won't hang around you very long if you're like that. And you could be completely right. Sometimes you've got to wait. You know, one of the things we say in ministry, and you're going to hear me talk about it as we move on in our Wednesdays in spiritual leadership, is this. We always preach to the lowest common denominator. So in, in when we were, when that worked out. When we were in youth, it was easy because when we said, okay, we have middle school kids in here. Kids are in here from sixth grade. So guess what we're preaching to? The sixth grader. Can I tell you, the twelfth grader is bored with that. But we have to, right? Because if I reach the 6th grader, I'm going to reach the 12th grader. All right? So we're always preaching the low and cause. You know why? Because we have to love the least, the least of these. We're called to... Listen, this is one of the irony things about uh, when I see churches arguing, especially between cultural or age wars, right? Where the older generation, they're just so stuck in tradition. The younger generation is like, we just want to do this. We just want to... Listen, man. Neither, none of that's love. The older generation needs to be more loving and willing to compromise a little. The younger generation needs to realize they don't know everything. But they can't because they're too busy being right. <laughs> and the sad part is, about to blow your mind right here, both are right. But because there's no love, there can be no compromise. 
But because there's no love, they can't work together. But because no their love, no love, they'll divide over both being right. We're called to, man, these, if these aren't these moments where we're called to love each other in these moments, they're the hardest moments. We can both be right and still be wrong. How we work through these things are big. How we move through these things are huge, right? This is what we learn. This is what we take from the gospel. All of it. Not just the early days where it's all nice and it's all friendly and we got to hang around Jesus as he sat around the fire and he told us all these parables. No, man, even in the, the darkest moment right now, we have a lot to learn. Like he didn't die so we could be petty. The life abundant is a life bigger than you. It's a life bigger than selfishness, right? And as soon as like Jesus says all this stuff, even no matter what, right? All of their response is really dramatic. Like you thought it was crazy before. Now amongst the church little crowd, it gets really dramatic. They tear their clothes. They cry aloud. Good thing this is cultural because I can't imagine if you agreed with me and started tearing your clothes, it's going to get awkward in here. Just saying. Just saying. It's weird. Let's never practice that. <laughs> the one thing that's different between Jesus and the Pharisees is the amount of public attention they're after. The Pharisees use the crowd around them to further their agenda and to justify their position. Sound political, right? I'm reminded once more from our study this past Wednesday. I read this this last Wednesday, but it's so good I'm going to read it again from our book, Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. And let me quote him. Neither strident nor flamboyant God's servant conducts a ministry that appears almost self-effacing. What a contrast to the arrogant self-advertising of so many today, both in and out of the church. On this very point, the devil tempted uh, Jesus, urging him to attempt a headline by grabbing and leaping off the rooftop of a temple. But Jesus did not seek headlines, and he didn't fall for the plot. Actually, so quiet and so unobtrusive was Jesus that many today still doubt his very existence. Jesus exemplifies the description of God found later in Isaiah forty-five fifteen. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. Jesus is like, I am. I am the guy. And they're like, ah, they're making all this commotion. They're all this noise. Look at everybody. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I'm, back, back off him. I know what he just said. It was so phenomenal and crazy. But I got to get everybody's eyes off that real quick. Because if they realize what he's saying, we're going to lose it here. We're going to lose it here. They need to see that we're all upset. They need to see this. We need to get the crowd behind us. If we get the crowd behind us, they'll think that what we're saying is right. Sometimes we do this. Jesus is never about self. Jesus doesn't seek attention. He knows he sealed his fate. And the walk to Golgotha has begun. Before a real trial, before there's any proof, and before there are any punishments handed down, they began to treat him as a guilty man. Right now, it's just accusation. And through accusation, he is condemned. And they spit, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him, and they jeered at him, and it says the guards slapped him as they took him away. And we hadn't even got to the Romans. <coughs> Has anyone done this to you? I mean, how would you feel if someone did this to you? I did all these things, right? I don't know about you, I've been in a few fights, hit me in my face. 
we're going, mm, it gets weird. I can, I can probably get through the spit part or even the jeering part. Start hitting me. It gets weird, right? Maybe you know people who treated you unfairly. Think about that for a second. People who really treated you unfairly. I mean, pretty sure there's probably somebody at one point in your life, maybe not now, maybe some of you are strong now, you've grown in the Lord, you can, you've worked out some forgiveness in your life, but maybe at one time you had that one person that you thought, you know what, man, no, I'm pretty sure I hate them for the rest of my life. Like, Jesus, you're going to have to work that thing out. Because I pretty much hate them. That, like, at some point, I think we all have that, especially as a teenager. Come on. We just do. Now, let me ask you this. Would you die for them in the order to save them? The one who's jeered at you. The one who's said bad things about you. The one who's tried to prove you wrong, who's ridiculed you. Would you die to save them? It's a valid question. It's hard to imagine Jesus dying for this people. But do not mistake. It's for these exact people he has come. He has come. This is the gospel. As hard as that is to believe, this is the gospel. And here's the other thing. This isn't a hammer, guys. This is just truth. This ugly, dark thing that lies within us. Never think that you're not one of them. You're right there with all of them, slapping him, hitting him, jeering at him. You're right there. You know what? One of the things that I get sick of sometimes, you know, when I listen to like history and the way history remembers everything, you know, we always look back at the World War II generation. They're called the golden generation. Can I tell you that the World War II generation produced Hitler and the Holocaust? Same guys, like we, we act like that was aliens. That's not aliens, guys, that lived in Germany. Human beings. By the way, there's a lot of Germans in the United States, all right? Same blood, human beings. That's what they are. I come from German background. Matter of fact, uh, I am only two generations from Germany. Two generations. My grandfather's parents came over on a ship as immigrants. So I'm only two generations removed from, from Germany. And the interesting, I, I feel for my granddad who fought in World War II, who spoke German. Can you imagine how awkward that was when you got a German last name and you speak German, but you're in the American army and you speak the enemy's language and you're kind of like, they're kind of wondering all the time, are you for... The motherland, or are you for us? Look what they did to the Japanese while we were here, by the way. The golden generation took the Japanese and put them in concentration camps here in the United States. They'd been born here. I remember the movie Captain America. Remember that one? Where he's like, hey, where are you from? You from, you know, like Korea? He goes, man, I'm from Fresno. <laughs> that's the Chinese guy. <laughs> hey, you remember that? In the movie? It's like funny, you know? I mean, like, but that's the thing is, right? Guys like that, like, they couldn't believe. Like, they just automatically assume because they see somebody of different color or different, that you must not be from here. No, that's not true. All right? Think of all the hardships, and yet he went and fought against a place where his grandparents lived and escaped from to come over here because it was, they wanted to live here where freedom was here and they could be whoever they wanted to be and they could bring some of their culture into America and integrate into that, and that's okay. But as much as we try to glorify that generation, it produced some horrible things. By the way, think back even farther. World War I. It was, World War I was called the war to end all wars because there were so many people dying. They thought if the war keeps up, there'll be no people. Listen, our history is one of just constant depravity. Constant depravity. And would you go die for him? 
Would you go die for the communist? Would you go die for the Hitler? Would you go die so that they have a chance to maybe be forgiven or redeemed? Would you die for them? This is who Jesus came for, right? And listen, we're no different. We are no different than any of them. We, we are not different. We've all done these things. By the way, the scriptures are plain. It says we've all turned our backs on him. Again, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected, talking about Jesus. They called him a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with a deep grief. And this is why. Next sentence. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care. That's us, guys. We turned our backs because we didn't care. Not a hammer to you this morning. It's just truth. This is the gospel. We didn't care then, and I'm going to be honest, we struggle to care today. It's the reason we just say when talking about Jesus, the cross, we simplify it. We try to like condense it. We try to make it beautiful as we can. We tell you to come into the church. We're going to make this thing as pretty as possible, right? I mean, think about, I always think about how hard ministry really is. And like, I can't believe that we try to pretty it up so much. I've always said that the church wears too much makeup. It's the truth. She wears too much makeup. She's, she, we want to come in. We want to wow you. We want to give you all these programs. We want you to everything feel good, feel good, feel good, so that I can come out and tell you how horrible you are and how much you need Jesus. That seems to work against itself. It works against itself. I mean, it's like coming in and you find out it's not as pretty as you thought. Like once you veer it back, it's still made of humans. And no matter how pretty we make it, the church is ugly. Because she does have problems. Because she does cut off ears from time to time. And when she gets caught, she runs out so quick she is left naked. And everybody sees her problems, like when pastors get called out for cheating on their wives or stealing money. That's when they're running away naked, guys. It's happening all the time. The gospel is being fulfilled all the time in the church. In like every time, well, I don't like going to that church. There's just a lot of people that live halfway. Where else can they go? By the way, Jesus only he offers forgiveness to halfway people. I don't know if you knew that. Like Jesus offers forgiveness to gospers. Why do you think they're there? Right? Well, there's a lot of alcoholic people that drink in this church or that church or people that do this or people do that. Where else can they go and somebody love them like that? Right? Jesus not says it's okay. Jesus just tells them, I love you. And he's going to keep saying he loves you until it changes you. At some point, the idea is, we're talking about it this morning, the idea is that Jesus continuing to say he loves you no matter what is going to wreck you. And when it wrecks you, that's when we'll be able to rebuild. And that's what the gospel is. It's this constant, I love you. Well, I died for you. Well, you, if you really knew me, you wouldn't have died for me. Because let's be honest, man, there's some people we, no matter what you're saying, right, no matter how Christian you want to be right now, there's people you ain't willing to die for. <laughs> like, you'll die for your spouse and you'll die for your kids, but come on, man, I don't know if I'm about to die for some pedophile. I don't know if I'm about ready to sacrifice my life or my time for some guy who's done something awful. By the way, Jesus loves all people. You don't get to like exclude some. You don't get to pick who he excludes either. He loves all people. This is, this is the gospel. It's the reason why we're here. We're not better than anyone. 
We're not better than anyone. No matter how, listen, it's our technology today, I saw something that wowed me the day. We're coming up with a flip phone again. You heard this, like Samsung's going to put out a glassed flip phone. I guess we're still infatuated with a little old technology and new technology. It's going to be this 4K phone that flips in half. And it's got a whole glass front. It's awesome looking. But no matter how good our technology is, like we, we talk all over the globe now on the internet. You can Remember in the 80s when we used to like make believe in the movies that you could video chat somebody? Like that was like a make believe stuff, right? And like the 80s, we were like, man, you think it's really going to get that way where we could like just talk somebody back and forth on a screen? Man, we do it now on our phone no matter where we're at. I'm at the dear least. They'll, they'll FaceTime me at the stand. What are you doing? Like, just because we got the technology doesn't mean it's wise to use it all the time, right? Deer stand's not the place to FaceTime you guys. But, I mean, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, we have all this technology, and we're not better. Matter of fact, you know what we found out? We're darker. We're darker. I mean, you know who was one of the first people to really get invested in the Internet? The porn industry. Because they realized for the first time they'll have access into your home. A big chunk of, of, of finances that started the Internet came from the porn industry. They knew it, man. They're like, man, these people will never have to leave their home, so they'll never have to go to a place where they're embarrassed. They can secretly do stuff that nobody knows about, and we can make money off of it. It revealed darkness in us. I mean, the Internet, all technology has done is, I mean, our technology is as depraved as we are. Right? What did the guy who created the atom bomb say? Behold, I have become the destroyer of worlds. We created, we, we discovered that when the atom explodes, it's unbelievable the amount of energy that's packed into it. So let's test it out on people. I, I did a, a study one time. Uh, Hiroshima, I think it was Nagasaki, I think is the actual study I did. In Nagasaki, when the atom blew, right? The atom bomb blew. Our, this is what technology did. In less than... I think it was like in less than two or three seconds, 130,000 people vanished from the earth. 130,000 people vanished in less than a few seconds. Within three days, that number is going to triple because of radiation. You wonder why they said we we're done? We don't want any more? And for all of America's gloating, you still know that we're the only ones ever nuked somebody. We always talk about how we should never have nukes, but the only people that's ever used nukes is us. Such, such weird stuff that's been happening. We're not better. This is why we can never fall away from the gospel where if you don't believe that, remember the painting that shows God holding Jesus up, but he's got the hammer in one hand and the nail in the other? That's us, guys. That painting's not of some other guy holding Jesus up with a hammer in one hand and a nail in the other. No, that's us. We are holding the hammer and we hold the nail. We crucified Jesus. We don't get to escape that. We're not better than anyone. Right? How many people go about their lives really never even caring about Jesus. They don't care about injustice. They just want to live, right? And he endured, he endured this whole thing so that you might enjoy the gift of grace. That's what it's all about. And how many people try not to think about it? And here's the thing is, by doing that, man, they never fully live within the realm of his existence. And if you don't think about it, then you will never have that nagging Holy Spirit to reel you in from unholy living. At some point, you have to think about the gospel. The gospel has to be something that's constantly living in your lives. 
You can just focus on the forgiveness and grace that you receive and never have to think of what it costs you to live your life, right? And that's what we want to do. That's what we try to do in the church. We try to focus just on living in Jesus, living in Christ, right? And we don't want to focus on what it costs to have that. We never think about that, the weight of it, right? That's what it costs. It costs something. We want what Jesus died for. We just don't want to admit uh, or live in the truth of much else. That it was us who put him there. The power of the whole story, the whole story, which is we're going to come to the end eventually. By the end of this year, we will come to the end. And the power of this whole story is one that changes your life. And I hope, I hope from the last year till the end of this, when this whole thing is done, that the whole idea we started out on this journey together, the reason I haven't stopped or be sidetracked is because the gospel has the power to change people's lives. We forget that. We say the church, oh man, if you go to church, your life be changed. No, 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 no. The church doesn't change your life. Jesus changes your life. Jesus will push you into a church setting because a church setting is where people who love Jesus congregate. That's what the church is. Let's not mistake that. The church is not Jesus. The church is the followers of Jesus. And anywhere there are followers of Jesus, whether in a home, whether sitting around a table, there is the church. Now, we love to give them 501c3s and have put names on them, but the truth of the matter is where followers of Jesus come together, there is the church. That's why when a 501c3 ends one day and the churches have to pay taxes one day and they lose half their properties because they're so used to not paying taxes and getting around those things, and one day when all that stuff falls and fails... The church will still be here because the church was never those things. The church is about people. He did not, when he said, I will rebuild it and not with human hands. Because you weren't built with human hands, contrary to what your mom and dad think. You are supernaturally and wonderfully made, created in the image of Jesus Christ. And when, listen, when we behold the beauty of each other, we behold the beauty of the Lord and the work of his hands. When you see a child, you behold the work and the glory of God. Because creation is not our thing, it's his thing. He made us in his image, so in his image we create. Because he creates it's not because we're so awesome or we're so good, right? It's because he's the creator. And since we're made in his image, we create. It's the gospel. Anyone who belongs in Christ, the Bible says, becomes this new person, right? The gospel drives us. It, it, Jesus, this acknowledgement of who we are, how much we needed Christ, right? It, 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 we become this new person. We're enveloped in Christ. The old life is gone. The new life begins, and this new life was purchased for you. By everything we're talking about, all this commotion, all this junk, all this stuff, this new life was created for you. He purchased it. This is his account. Jesus' account of what it costs to purchase this new life for you. That's what we've been studying. What does it cost for you to be free? That's what we've been talking about for a year. For a year now, we've been discussing what it costs for you to have a better life. For you to be free from addiction. For you to be free from self-righteousness, from self-loathing, from selfishness. 
What's it cost? This is the account. And, and we honor him not only today, but over the next few months as we will continue to walk this road with him, following behind him like the disciples did, watching and watching. But, you know, we, we, we dare not get too close, right? Because we don't want to be associated, right? But we're going to follow and we're going to stay right there. And as the thing changes, as it shifts and we see all the things happen, right? We're going to go through it right there with him. Right there with him. You don't want to miss it. This is how it happens. We're going to unfold all of it. You're not going to want to miss it. This is what it costs. This life that you're enjoying right now, all the things that you possess, the gifts of God that he's given you, this is what it cost him. This is what it really cost. This is what it really cost. Right? I know you've worked hard, but the life that you've been given, as much as you think some things might have happened by coincidence, it's not coincidence you married who you married. It's providence. Quit thinking like that. It's not luck. It's divine. It's divine. Man, some, some of us need a little bit of that, a little wake-up call into what God's purchased for us. And you start thinking like that, it changes, changes things. I tell my wife every morning, I said, you know, when she gets up, she gets up to make coffee. When she makes coffee, she glows. Before that, not so much. <laughs> and when she's headed towards that coffee maker, she's glowing. It's like, behold, the glory of the Lord. glory of the Lord. I tell her she's never more beautiful than when she's making coffee. She's like, I look, I look like a wreck. Not while you're making coffee. You look wonderful. Hair's all crazy, but that's okay. Right? She's, God's, God's created her. She's the creation of the Lord. It's not happenstance that I would have all these problems with alcoholism and drug addiction and have all this wreck of a life happen. And then God sends me this other person that's not fully okay, but knows, you know, she knows Jesus. And then that steering begins to happen. Somebody's starting to grab the rudder on the boat. And we're starting to sail, not in the right, right direction, but we're, we're heading there. We're starting to veer off the old course, the course that leads to destruction. And before I know it, we're back on track. And not on my track, because I was headed for destruction. I mean, I was straight up Jonah. Not only am I not going that way, I'm going to be awful that way. I mean, I literally, I remember one time being at a, uh, if you've ever been to Canton, they have a thing called First Monday there. And I remember being pretty high one time, and this guy, like, must have known it. He was a street corner preacher, and he starts talking all this stuff to me. And it's not good. It's like, you know, he could probably see my red eyes, and he could see it's all bad. And he's like, I don't know, saying stuff about hell and demons and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure he's casting devils out of me. And I'm like, I'm about to come cast the devil out of you. You keep talking to me. You know, and I remember being so mean and awful to this guy. And then I think that this, that I was thinking about all of this with this message. It came to me in prayer about how awful I was to this guy who was preaching the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. I being the chief, right? I threatened him at one point, right? And uh, I was thinking how Christ, the, I'm the same, I jeered at him. I've spit, I've mocked, I've threatened men of God who are doing the right thing. You know, you, you want to know what drives me to stay the straight and narrow? You want what drives me to come up and preach or pray? It's those moments of my life. They're the greatest fuel for my life. My failures have turned into be my greatest fuel burning 
get on my knees, make me pray thing. Because, not because I feel guilty. Don't mistake that. I am forgiven. That's what fuels me. I am forgiven. And those are things, yeah, I might be ashamed of. But God says, you don't have to be. That's just, you were in sin. Now you're not. Now you've received me. You've accepted me. You don't have to live like that. I have freed you from that lifestyle. And when I look back, guess I am free from that lifestyle. It's so far behind me. I can't remember what it was like to be that guy. My wife calls it a different name now. She says, you know, I'm Jim now. She goes, that was Jimmy. Jimmy's dead. We buried him a long time ago. And that's how we kind of joke about it now. But I don't know who that is for you. Maybe you had a nickname and maybe that nickname's dead. And maybe this is who you are today. And the glorious thing is, I hope so. Because it's not he is going to purchase it. It's he has purchased it. He's purchased your tomorrow. Go live it. He's purchased your freedom from any addictions that you struggle with. Go live it. Well, I keep failing. Awesome. That means you should be humble about continuing to try. That should remind you that when you do succeed, it wasn't you. It was Jesus that got you through it. This is the new creation created in Jesus that I remember I couldn't do it by myself. That if I could will it to be, it would have already be. And it's not because I keep trying to will it to be. And when I finally give up and surrender, this is when I find the Lord. And this is you. Let's bring joy back in. I, like I said, this isn't a hammer message. I'm not preaching the gospel so that we could hammered down on guilt or on any of these things, not preaching uh, the gospel uh, uh, for those things, preaching the gospel because it is the way, it is the truth, and it's what gives us the abundant life. You could come up and play. It's okay. I'm still used to, I told somebody the other day, I'm not used to not having the kids yet, guys. Can we just forgive me on some of that? If I seem out of step sometimes, I miss the white noise a little bit. Uh, maybe that's the father in me, but all the screaming and the uh, different things that are usually the distraction, I'm kind of missing a little bit, you know? Maybe I'm having the pastor emptiness for our church a little thing. I don't know what that is because I still have kids in my house, but it feels like that in here. I miss the kids. Um, this morning, watching the kids and participating and singing, and I think about what we were doing and what we're raising up with the way we're teaching our kids and singing and the way we're teaching our kids and dancing and stuff and I think about how uh, by the way that is my optimism that is my hope right that the next generation will be a singing and dancing generation that once more when we see the Holy Spirit fall upon the church that we'll sing a singing and dancing generation fall upon the church that remember the old song when the spirit of the Lord comes into my soul I will dance like David danced maybe with more clothes on but dance like David danced, right? Right? Because, again, like I know we had the whole nudity thing in here. That's never going to be an excuse to be nude in the church. All right? Let's uh, get ready for worship as we're waiting on, on.